As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I said, what am I going to do? A 97-year-old woman locked out of her senior apartment. It was completely out of the blue. The assisted living facility calls it an emergency. We want to keep them in their home for as long as possible. Her family calls it something else. It's called dumping, hospital dumping. This is hospital dumping, and it's a cynical way to do business. This week on Open Record, the number one complaint against long-term care facilities. What happened to my mom happens all the time. Illegal evictions. In our opinion, the state of Wisconsin betrayed us. From the Fox 6 studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson, and I'm joined today by Fox 6's Amanda St. Hilaire. Amanda, wait a minute. You're still on Open Record? (laughs) This is great. I am back. Since assuming some managerial responsibilities, I've taken a break from the podcast, uh, but being here today is an unexpected delight. We also have another delight, and that is Open Record (laughs) Executive Producer Sarah Smith. Hello. Back on the podcast again. Thanks, Sarah. I feel like I need to say, you know, guess who's back? Back again. <laughs> anyway, this is like I feel like we're wonderful we're ba- to be here. The original bunch, right back here. So we are recording this episode on Thursday, October twentieth, and it's been a little more than a year since a new Berlin assisted living center told the family of ninety-seven-year-old Elaine Benz she was not allowed to come back to her apartment after a hospital stay. Her family says they got less than twenty-four hours notice, and they insist that is against the law. A state inspector agreed with them, but then everything changed. So you guys, this story is one that dates back a year and it's been sort of a saga that has uh, worked its way through the Department of Health Services, um, but it's really indicative or emblematic of a, of a larger issue. Brian, how did this story get on your radar? Well, this starts with uh, a man named Bill Leaders who contacted me and said his mother, Elaine Benz, had been, as we indicated, not allowed to come back to her assisted living facility. She was living at a place uh, called Regency in New Berlin. And she had actually moved there a number of years ago with her second husband um, into what was really just independent living, senior apartments. They were able to care for themselves. They didn't need particular assistance, but they were in a place where if they needed a little help from time to time, they could get it. Um, Her husband eventually passed away. And then just before COVID-19, just before the pandemic, she was falling on a little more ill health and her family, Bill and and his sister, Diane, decided mom really needs a little more help. So they had her move from the independent living side to the assisted living section, still at Regency in New Berlin. And she had been there for a couple of years when this whole incident happened. She has a fall, she goes to the hospital And it's while she's in the hospital, in fact, literally hours before she was supposed to return back home, that they get word not from Regency in New Berlin, but in fact from the rehab facility where she was at the time, 
that Regency wasn't going to let her back in and that she would need to find a new place to live. And of course, the family said, what and what do we do now? And that's where the whole sort of problem began for them. Well, and obviously, like as family members, I think about, okay, if that were my mom or my grandma and I'm the one taking care of her and now what do you mean she can't go back? My, I mean, the one question is like, why? So what did you know, that new Berlin center have anything to say? What did, how did they respond? Initially, they say, uh, Mr. Leader says he got no explanation, um, that they were just told she couldn't come back. And as the, the days went on, they, they talked to an administrator at the facility who eventually said, well, one of our CNAs was there and, and, you know, got a report from the rehab center and she's just, she's in a condition where we can't accept her back. It's not safe for her to be in, in our facility. Um, eventually through the course of the next several months, they got a little bit more of an explanation, and ultimately they were told this was an emergency, that there was too much of a risk that Elaine Benz was going to be a danger to herself, that she was too much work for this facility, that the care they would need to provide to her was beyond what they were licensed to provide. Um, But the family was a little leery of that explanation because no one told them that up front. There was nothing that they were aware of that had significantly changed between the time she left to go to the hospital and the time she was due to return. And no one was explaining to them what has suddenly become such an emergency that you had to tell us within hours, you've got to get your mom out. And so they they never felt they got a really satisfactory explanation. And that's why they filed a complaint with the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. So I think the next question that people listening to this are asking is, can they do that? Does the law allow them to say, just kidding, she can't come back. It, that's a question that depends on the type of facility you're in, or at least what the rules are about whether they can do that depend on the type of facility you're in. And Wisconsin has all sorts of different long-term care facilities, and the regulations are different for every level. And in fact, nursing most people will just refer to this as a nursing home. Where she was is not actually a nursing home. Nursing homes are governed by federal law and regulated by the federal government. They are also monitored and regulated by the states, but they, they fall under federal guidelines, the strictest, and they are also where the most seriously ill people are. But assisted living has a whole strata of different types of care as well. And in Wisconsin, that includes community-based residential facilities that might look a lot like nursing homes. And what Elaine Benz was in was called a residential care apartment complex. It also has a lot of the hallmarks of a nursing home and the types of people who are there sometimes look like we might think nursing home patients would look like, but they're intended to be a little lower level of care. Um, The maximum amount of services that can be provided is 28 hours per week. If they have to provide more than that, then... Uh, they're not licensed to care for people in that way. And those services aren't necessarily just nursing type services. It can be just, you know, changing the bed sheets and and helping with meals and and things like that or administering medications. Um, Elaine Benz had been there for a number of years. The family says she never needed anywhere close to 28 hours of care, but her health had been in decline. And she had been Uh, She'd gone through a series of falls over the past year. I think she had four falls within about 14 months. Uh, She was becoming more and more agitated, weaker, unable to walk on her own or even use a walker. She was asking to use a wheelchair more often. The question that you asked, though, really, Amanda, was can they do this? And in a residential care apartment complex, much like other higher-level facilities in Wisconsin, there's a requirement that before these facilities can just kick someone out, evict them, and terminate their contract— They have to give them 30 days notice. 
they or their family members, whoever their powers of attorney, the people who are in charge of, of taking care of them uh, and, and their, uh, their needs, they're supposed to give them 30 days notice. They didn't do that here. But there's an exception. And we talked about them ultimately saying there was an emergency. The exception is in the cases of an emergency. What constitutes an emergency? Well, that is very vaguely defined in the law, but effectively, if there is something that makes the either puts that resident at, a, at an immediate threat to themselves, or if they are a threat to people in the facility, staff members, or other residents, then that can be deemed an emergency, and then they might have to be moved with without any notice. Um, the real question here is what constituted this sudden emergency when there hadn't been any particular change in her condition from the time she left until the time she was told she couldn't come back. I'll say one of the most interesting things as we kind of, you know, worked our way through this story was, you know, just from reading and seeing your story and talking to you are the different kinds of facilities there are, how we all just kind of blanket them as nursing homes, but just the intricacies that make each one different, you know, just super interesting. So the family files a complaint. You know, what, what happens after that complaint's filed? So they filed a complaint with the Department of Health Services, and they have a division called the Division of Quality Assurance, which does inspections with nursing homes. Those are inspected annually with community-based residential facilities, which are assisted living facilities with a little higher level of care. Those are inspected, I believe, annually. It might be every other year. Residential care apartment complexes are only inspected when there's a complaint or a concern. And in this case, they had raised a concern, so they dispatched an inspector to go see what happened here. That inspector looked at all the medical records, interviewed the staff member who went out to the rehab facility and determined they could not allow Elaine Benz to come back. And after reviewing those files and doing that interview, the inspector said there was nothing here that changed between the time she left and the time she came back. Nothing significant changed. Her care needs were the same. And if you were able to care for her before, there's no reason you couldn't care for her now. So they deemed it a violation and actually issued a pair of fines totaling $1,500. One of those violations was for not doing a proper assessment at the rehab facility. Another was for the you know the, the failure to give 30 days of notice the family seemed satisfied with the violations but immediately bill leaders expressed concern their emails document he expressed concern he said you know pro healthcare is a big company that's who owns the regency in new berlin they have deep pockets and he believes they're going to find a way he wrote this in an email before anything else happened he said i think they're going to find a way to get out of this and sure enough that is what he says happened a short time later so what happened next? Because that's where things really start to get interesting. It is. So a couple of months after the inspector issued or wrote her report and issued what they called deficiencies, two deficiencies against the facility and then those violations that came with a pair of fines, there was a private meeting between pro-healthcare's attorneys and attorneys for the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. And in that private meeting, the Department of Health Services agreed to settle the case, and they wrote up what is called a stipulated settlement agreement, essentially where the parties sort of agreed to certain things. And what they agreed to was, among other things, that it would save on the cost of litigation to settle this case. And to save on that cost of litigation, they also uh, indicated there had been additional information provided by the facility since the violations had been issued additional information that uh, led the state to decide to rescind those violations. So they wiped out the violations, they eliminated the fines, and in fact, they removed the original inspection report from the state's publicly searchable website and instead replaced it with one that indicated no violations had been found. 
when Elaine Benz's family, when her son, Bill Leaders, and her daughter, Diane Roth, found out about this, obviously they were incensed and upset. Bill said he felt the state of Wisconsin had betrayed them. So, but Bill has, you know, a little something extra here. So how, you know, what's his special expertise that adds a twist to this? Yeah, it's definitely a plot twist because if you are a Wisconsin journalist listening to this podcast right now, you probably recognize the name Bill Leaders. And this is probably why you're hearing about this story at all, because we're going to talk in a moment about what a big problem this is, not just in Wisconsin, but nationwide. We don't hear about a lot of these cases, though, but Bill Leaders made a real stink here. Bill Leaders happens to be not just Elaine Benz's son, but he's also the president of the Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council. Public records, open records, open government, transparent government, that is his thing. It's his specialty. And when he saw what happened here with not only a violation that had occurred and an inspector who agreed that a violation had occurred, but the government then meeting secretly behind clo- – well, he says secretly. They they dispute that term. But meeting privately behind closed doors with the attorneys for the company that's facing the fines and then coming out of that with a mutual agreement to wipe them away. He had some real concerns. And, and Bill Leaders went to work in two ways. One, in addition to being someone who's really big on transparent government, he's also a journalist. And he writes editorial pieces for a magazine called The Progressive in Madison, Wisconsin, and he published a number of pieces about what he felt was a real injustice in his mom's case and also extrapolated beyond his mom's case to what a big problem this is throughout the country. He also filed open records requests with the Department of Health Services, and he got hundreds and hundreds of pages of emails and memos that document what sort of happened along the way and the state's response to his concerns It was clear to him, and it's clear if you read these emails, that there was a real public relations concern about how they respond, coordinating a response, ensuring that they pass it through all the chains of command before a response is issued, explaining why they did this. And ultimately, uh, leaders still felt he wasn't getting a clear explanation of what changed. Why did they decide to rescind these citations? Was there some, if there was something legitimate that they could point to and say, This new information came to light, and it shows that what they did was justified. It would be one thing, but he said they couldn't point to any new information at all since the inspector had 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 indicated there were violations that should have changed their minds, and the state was unable to come up with any explanation. There was nothing in those records that indicated they had come across any new information. In fact, the head of the inspections division, the Division of Quality Assurance, in one email said – we rescinded everything? This is a surprise to me. This is news to me. And he wanted to call everybody together to get an explanation of what happened. Ultimately, Otis Woods is his name. He is the one who signs off on the letter responding and saying this was fully justified. But he was the one when he heard about it who said, I didn't even know we did this. So did anyone ever get that explanation for why they did such a 180? That's where leaders comes to the Fox 6 investigators. I mean, he's pretty much an investigative reporter on his own, right? But he wasn't, he didn't feel he was getting clear answers from the state. And of course, he's an interested party here. So he comes to someone else as an independent journalist to dig a little bit further. And I contacted the Department of Health Services and I asked them, what additional information are you talking about? In fact, 
Bill Leader sat down with a de- uh, an assistant deputy secretary for the Department of Health Services to ask these questions. He recorded the conversation. He shared that recording with me. She was aware he was recording it. This wasn't secret. Uh, but in that conversation, this assistant deputy secretary says over and over again that the reason they rescinded the citations was this additional information, that new information had come to light. When he and his sister press her on what that was, she says, that's not information we could give you. He objected. Of course, they have power of attorney. This is the, They have the legal power of attorney over their mom. A spokesperson for the department ultimately told me that this assistant deputy secretary misspoke, that in fact the family got all the information that they had at their disposal, all of the medical records, everything. Bill looked through it and said there's nothing in here that they didn't already have when the inspector issued the violation. So he's still left to wonder what in the world was new or, as he suspects, Was this just a closed-door agreement to make the violations go away? So I asked the state, was it what he's suggesting? Was this just a closed-door agreement to make these things go away? Were you essentially letting them off the hook? Or can you point to something specific? And what the state ultimately told me was there there were some third-party therapy notes. They wouldn't specify what was in them, who the third party was, what was in those notes, they, and, and they, in fact, said that that wasn't the only thing but that it reinforced their decision to rescind the citation. So even with me, they still won't say what it was that ultimately caused them to change their minds. I reached out to ProHealthcare to ask them. Maybe they could tell me. I said the family's willing to sign privacy waivers if that's the concern, and they were more than happy to do so. But a spokesperson for ProHealthcare said he would only tell me that off the record. He wanted to explain why they did it, but only if I agreed not to tell you, only if I agreed not to tell anybody else. And of course, I told him that doesn't really do our viewers or our listeners much good if I agree to those terms. So I didn't agree. And at that point, he said he he could only give me a written statement that was fairly vague. That also makes it clear that whatever the concern is, it's clearly not privacy, because if he can share it with you, it's not a concern about releasing the patient's confidential information. It's a public relations concern, which isn't something that we as journalists are particularly concerned with. That's right. And this spokesperson uh, told me in that conversation, which, again, I never agreed could be off the record because I just didn't think that was useful to our listeners or to our viewers. But he said that he felt that sharing that kind of private information, even if the family was okay with it, would be unseemly for their company and would send a bad message to their other residents that they're the types, I guess, to go out and share this kind of private information. I still don't know what he wanted to suggest. It may well be he wanted to tell me the things I already knew. The family provided me their mom's medical records. We know that she'd been more agitated with staff recently. We know that she had worsening dementia. We know that she'd had a series of falls. The question wasn't, was her condition getting worse? The question even isn't even necessarily, did she ultimately need a higher level of care, which is what they were arguing. The question is, what made it a sudden emergency to the point that they only gave a few hours of notice? And that's the real problem that if you go beyond this case that we're hearing repeated over and over again, it's not just facilities who are kicking people out because they've become too much of a burden or because maybe their reimbursement rate isn't high enough so they come up with some sort of an excuse to get rid of them. Those are the allegations we hear over and over. 
it's often the biggest complaint is they didn't give us any notice and we felt we had we didn't know what to do. And that's what happened here. So why was it an emergency? We still don't know. And I do want to take, and, and we'll get back on the main focus in a second, but I do just want to take a little diversion to say that for us as journalists, we don't give on background or off the record interviews out like candy. Like for us, the threshold is high especially when we're talking to someone who works in public relations or who's in an elected office, someone who's to a higher standard of accountability, our threshold for going off the record is high because our job is to get to the truth. So it has to be like a a whistleblower reason, a real compelling reason for us to agree to move a conversation off the record. And that standard exists for an ethical reason. So that's why there are times when we say, you know what, we're not doing that. And I think it confuses some people, oh, you're passing up an opportunity to get information, but it's information we then can't use to help you get to the truth. So for us, it's a big deal if we agree to speak on background or off the record in those situations. So I think that was a good journalism ethics lesson right there, Brian. Well, I just want to, I want to clarify one thing to that very point, this spokesperson for pro healthcare, I I did offer him, I said, if you want to speak candidly off the record, as long as we agree to immediately go on the record with the same subject matter, I'm okay with that. And he ultimately said that was not acceptable because no matter whether we talked about it in advance or not, he wasn't going to talk about these things on the record. And at that point I said, then I I don't want to speak off the record because I don't think that's a, a service to our, to our listeners, to our viewers. Agreed. So bringing it back to the issue at hand, and you mentioned this kind of thing with the lane happening repeatedly. Do we have a number on how often this kind of thing happens? It's hard to say when we say this kind of thing, the specific sort of facts of this case are hard to extrapolate. But what we do know is that complaints about discharges and evictions from long-term care facilities have been the number one complaint that state ombudsman's offices all across the country receive year after year after year in nursing homes and in assisted living facilities. Here in the state of Wisconsin, in the past three years, they've received more than 1,200 complaints about discharges and evictions. And I should say that that can also be complaints by the facility because someone was not paying their bill. Um, there's there's a payment issue. Or it could be a matter of just some other types of miscommunication. It doesn't always mean it's someone who's been discharged while they were away at the hospital and what some people refer to as hospital dumping. That is a thing that's a real concern that facilities will use you know, it, when someone's in a facility, it's a lot harder to kick them out. It's kind of like landlord-tenant law. It's harder to get someone out when they're there. Once you get them out, it's a little easier to keep them out. And so a lot of facilities will wait until someone's been sent to the hospital, and that's the time where they will say, you're not allowed to come back. The greatest concern is, of course, they wait until the end of that hospital stay. And the day before they're about to return, they notify them or the family members, you can't come back. Again, if that's done for reasons that don't really comport with the law, um, that's that's illegal hospital dump, dumping. It's an illegal eviction. We don't know how many of those are, are you know, complaints that have merit, but we know it's the number one complaint here in Wisconsin and all across the country. The Office of Inspector General for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services just recently, just last year, a year ago, uh, issued a report on this saying it had been the number one complaint for a long time and that 47 of the state's ombudsman's offices responded to surveys that they put out. 41 of them said this is a serious problem in their state. Wisconsin is one of those states that said 
this is a serious problem. So a lot of our viewers and a lot of our listeners are, you know, seeing and hearing this and going, oh my gosh, my parents are about to go, you know, needing extra care that I can't give them. Um, how can I avoid something like this or how can I prepare for it? So the, the state ombudsman's office, essentially, by the way, that, that that's the state office that is independent of the Department of Health Services. They are not within the department. They are not in the same department that inspects these facilities. They say that they're advocates for people in nursing homes. And they say, first of all, reach out to them. Find out what type of facility your loved one is in or you're in, what regulations apply, what are your rights. In some cases, if you've been told you can't come back or they're going to kick you out, you can have you can file an appeal and the ombudsman may be able to help uh, navigate, help you navigate that so that you can stay where you're living or lo your loved one can stay there. So know what your rights are and more important than anything, communicate early. The moment you or a loved one moves into a facility, find out what the discharge rules and process are. Make sure you know what your rights are and how they plan to communicate. If there's any concern that someone's condition is worsening, find out at what point would you say you can no longer take care of this person and what do we do then so you don't get this kind of a surprise. So how's Elaine doing right now? Where did she end up? Elaine ended up at another facility. We got to go and meet her. Um, she definitely has memory care issues, but it, it the place she is staying now, as I understand it, is another residential care apartment complex. And, and so it has the same licensing restrictions, again, as I understand it, um, as the one she was, she was moved out of. Uh, ultimately, though, her family says it may well be that there was a need for greater care, that their mom's condition was worsening. And she's, uh, she does seem to have trouble remembering a lot of things. When, when I visited her, her sister asked, you know, told her, well, you, you like bingo, right? And she said, I do. Clearly, she's struggling with some of those things. What they said, their biggest problem here wasn't that they needed to find a new place for their mom to go, but they needed to find it in a matter of hours. They felt they should have been given better notice, better communication, and more time to prepare, and they want to make sure this doesn't happen to someone else. It is time for us to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual, have a little fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared. And Sarah has that question again this week. What's in store, Smitty? Hey, hey. Okay, today's question. What is an adult problem no one prepared you for? An adult problem no one prepared me for? Um, maybe we can add, because we're all parents here, maybe it can be adult slash parenting problem no one prepared you for. Does anything jump to, to your mind, Amanda? Parenting yourself. <laughs> when you have a, a little face staring up at you, uh, that is, well, in my oldest case, it's actually my husband's face on a, child bot, a child's body, which is <laughs> sometimes, sometimes gives you a visceral reaction. Um, but doing the exact things that you know they got from you or things that you know you did uh, to your parents and how to even respond to that. Or even when you see traits in yourself and your kid where sometimes you go, uh-oh. Like I was, I'm, I'm an oldest perfectionist, uh, which I'm sure is completely shocking to everyone here recording this podcast today. And so I, I mean, as a kid, you looked at me the wrong way and I would cry. If there was even a suggestion, suggestion that I had done something less than 100% perfect. It was a crushing blow. And to see that in my kid and go, oh my gosh, I 
I literally don't know how to fix this because it's something I'm still working on in myself. So how do I help this child navigate that? That's something no one really prepared me for. And I don't think anyone can really prepare you for that. I'm pausing here because I, there's so, it's not that I can't think of one. It's that I'm thinking of so many. I'm trying to think what's like what stands out. But I will tell you this is just one pulled out of a pot of all sorts of things. No one prepared me, especially as an adult homeowner, for all the things you have to winterize. Like all the things you have to get ready for winter or all the anxiety I have if I haven't properly winterized things. I mean – Will it start in spring? And, yeah. and when? And when <laughs> Do I winterize the lawnmower yet? Do I wait? It was really cold. It got below freezing, but it's going to warm up to the 70s this weekend. When do I winterize the motorcycle that I have? When do I winterize – when do I have to change the filters? What other things do I need to do? Do I need to clean out the gutters? Should I be getting the Christmas lights out and putting them up early in case it's really cold after Thanksgiving? <laughs> all of these things give me anxiety every Every fall. And even as I said them all, I think I just ramped up. Well, my blood pressure. I <laughs> Listening. I'm not going to call you old now. <laughs> you, you just did. I am going to go on the record and say, I think you're going to make a great old person. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if that that's all that your time will be consumed with. Like if you don't have that, that full-time job anymore and you are retired, all you can worry about are those things. You're just going to be winterizing year-round. <laughs> that's, But that's what I look forward to. Not the winterizing, but I look forward to having that. This is the other thing I was thinking of saying, which is I no one prepared me for the fact, you know, when you're a kid, you're worried about, I, I'm, I'm bored. I need something to do. No one prepared me for the fact that as an adult, you never, ever have time to be bored. I don't know the last time I was bored. Oh, my gosh. I can't remember. And that's why I'm... I sort of fear retirement because if I ever find myself bored, I won't know what to do with myself. There are so many things I could fill my day with that when I have to do things like, you know, winterize or, or clean the bathroom or do something, I, I'm just trying to – I'm sacrificing sleep to do that. Um, although I say that, you know, I, I look back and go, well, how many how many episodes have I watched on Netflix or something of some show? <laughs> I probably could have been, you know, winterizing the, the – or changing the filters in the furnace. But it feels like – there's not enough time in the day ever. I pray I pray that when it comes to this time where you are retired and all this stuff, that you make an Excel spreadsheet for all the winterizing <laughs> because I think you would be so good pivot at that. Pivot tables. <laughs> You're going to have winterizing pivot tables. I'm going to create a self-help book that's based on Excel spreadsheets and organizing your life. That's prob- that's You know what? Actually, that might be my life's purpose in retirement. And I'll do that from a beach. Oh, bless. I'll be right down. Um I think I would probably just say, like, just budgeting, like, money, I guess time too, but just, like, thinking ahead. And then all of a sudden when you're like, oh, my gosh, our sink is broken and now we have to get a plumber or get a thing. I don't know. It's just – it's all the things between the kids' expenses and my expenses and, you know, I don't know. I never learned any of that in high school. Be, you, because of my spreadsheets, I keep like, you know, a, a finance sort of log of what's, and I remember of early, you er, early on, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I was keeping these and, and I would like, if there was something that was sort of a one-time expense that seemed really big, I would be like, well, the reason this month was bad is because I had this one big purchase. And then I, as I tracked it over time, I realized, yeah, that one big purchase was one time, but then there was the other thing that broke down or the other birthday present I needed it's to get something. or the other, there's always a big purchase somewhere or a big yeah. surprise bill. And that is the thing you have to fact. There's my budgeting lesson for the day. Yeah. Just factor in. There's going to be a big thing. 
Can I just say, budget in to your uh, financial life, all the kids' birthday parties and uh-huh. gifts that you buy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the birthday circuit is rough. Oof, it's a rough season for us right now. <laughs> like Every time I turn around, I was like, cool, another gift. Love it. And if you get invited so, to a couple of weddings, you go, great, open bar. Oh, got to get another uh, gift. Yeah, so yeah. no, all right. <laughs> yes. Oh, well. I, I'm uh, probably going to leave this podcast right now and go uh, go check my finance check spreadsheet. My accounts. <laughs> <laughs> if you have a topic you would like us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate, send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. Amanda, thanks for being on. It was a delight to be here. We hope you get to be back again soon. Sarah, thank you as always. Of course. And as always, thank you to all the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, of course, Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson. We'll be back again next week. Mm